Uh, Michelle and I sat underneath a seminary professor on Friday, and as I, I walked out, I thought, I'm going to ask ask our people a question today. I was going to have you write the answer down, but uh, that didn't happen. So don't don't answer this except to yourself. But I have three questions. Where is God right now? In your head, just where where is God right now? Where is Jesus right now? And where is the Spirit right now? I'm going to give a pastoral answer here and say that the majority of the people in church would say that God is in heaven. And based upon scripture, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. And that the spirit resides within us. I'm hoping that everybody in the room would say that. Uh, But the truth is, they're three in one, and they're all three right here right now. They're all three right here, right now. You're not looking at God, Jesus, at the Spirit, but you're looking at a man where God, Jesus, and the Spirit resides. I'm not God, I'm not Jesus, I'm not the Spirit, but they reside within me. And that's what I want you to see, and that's really what I want you to hear this morning, because as we get into Hebrews... This this letter, it's about my favorite subject of all time. You may think it's baseball, uh, but it's actually Jesus. Jesus is my favorite subject. Who he is and what he has done and is presently doing. For those who have accepted him as Savior. It's kind of a a key thing. This letter was written to believers in Jesus. The book of Hebrews is about Jesus, the son who became our high priest. That might not mean anything to you at this point, but it will as we go through this study. That Jesus is a priest in the Old Testament testament the old covenant the priest would make the sacrifices for people's sins and then jesus became the king when he sat upon the throne sat upon the throne of god in fulfillment of basically psalm chapter 110 so hebrews this book confirms the supremacy of jesus christ to all, to all created things, they all understand who Jesus is and that he is the king. Be it the angels, Moses, or even the Levitical priesthood. And again, if you don't know what that is, you'll learn here in this study. Hebrews kind of helps explain the purpose of the old covenant and reminds us now that you sitting here are a part of a new covenant. If something is new, it makes something old, right? If something is new, it makes something old. 
and now we are part of the new, and honestly, you were never a part of the old. We live in a new covenant sacrificial system, and the only sacrifice is Jesus. That's it. The word better is used 13 times in this book as the writer shows the superiority of Jesus. Another word that is repeated in this book is perfect. In the original Greek, it's used 14 times the word perfect in Hebrews to perfect. You're looking at someone who's perfect. I have been perfected. And not my behavior. I get it. It's not my behavior. My behavior is still, trust me, <laughs> it's still being worked on, still being sanctified. But as a person that I identify as, I have been made perfect, not because of anything that I did, but because of what Jesus did. It means in perfect standing with God. There's nothing more than I can do to get a better relationship with God right now. I can't get any closer to him than I am right now. I can know him more. I can know him more. I can experience him more, but I, I can't get any closer than I am right now. This perfection, it could never be accomplished by the Levitical priesthood. It can never be accomplished by the law. All the law did was show me that I needed a Savior. I could never fulfill the complete law, and neither can you. It just doesn't happen. Jesus Christ gave himself as one offering for sin, one time. And by this, he has perfected all those that are sanctified. Now, here's the question is like, well, who wrote Hebrews? I don't know. We don't know. It can, be, it can be discussed among theologians. Paul wrote it. Luke wrote it. Barnabas wrote it. Maybe historians wrote it, but no one actually knows who wrote Hebrews. It's the only New Testament book that is anonymous, that nobody really knows. We don't know the author, but we do know this, that he had a great knowledge of the law and the Levitical priesthood. So we believe that he's obviously Jewish because he understands it very well and explains it very well. And according to chapter 2, verse 3, it was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The author heard the gospel from those who had walked with Jesus. So he had heard it from those that walked with Jesus, but he doesn't say that he actually heard it from Jesus. And therefore, we assume that he, he's not from Jerusalem because that's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching was there in Jerusalem. So this author probably didn't live there. Who was Hebrews written to? At the time, Hebrew Christians those that were Jews and maybe even some Gentiles that believed Jesus was the Messiah. They were... <laughs> the Jews in the Old 
covenant, they knew that there was a Messiah that was supposed to come to save them, to rescue them. You see, they had been taken in captive by the Egyptians, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came in. And, and, and all the time, you can go throughout the Old Testament and see how many times the Jews would, would sin. God would punish them by them being taken captive or basically placed all over the world. And then they would repent, and God would draw them back in, and it's just this repetition, this, you know what I'm talking about, that repetition, that thing, just, okay, I'll be good this time. I'll be good this time. And, and that's basically what happened, but they knew that there was a Messiah that was going to come and save them from all that. So they were expecting this Messiah to come, and then when Jesus actually came and proved that he was the Messiah, most of the Jews didn't believe it was Jesus. They just didn't believe it. But there were some who did. And we would call them the Christians of Judea. And this is who this letter is written to. And they were being persecuted by the non-Christian Jews. You look in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, it says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, that sounds pretty desperate, but they really have been persecuted. We think that uh, we get persecuted when somebody ridicules us on Twitter. It was nothing like that. It was much deeper. And today, Christians are being persecuted as a whole. Just are. Granted, some probably deserve it by the way that they believe and the way that they act. But as a whole, they're being persecuted. We're being persecuted. Not anything like it was back in here. No one outside of Jerusalem had died yet because of their practice or beliefs. Stephen had been martyred in 62 AD, and James had already been killed in Jerusalem, and it was all based upon what they believed in Jesus and what they were teaching. Okay, so when was Hebrews written? Let's try to figure this out. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, it says, be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. When he says brother, he's saying that Timothy is already a believer in Jesus Christ. And we know that Timothy became a believer around 50 AD. So that would be the beginning point of maybe where this book was written. And then Hebrews makes a reference to the existing sacrificial system, which takes place in the temple. And you and I know, based upon history, that the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. So now we've narrowed this letter down somewhere between 50 A.D. and 70 A.D. Pompey was the Roman general that seized Jerusalem in 63 A.D. And there was a revolt that took place by the Jews in 64 A.D. You guys, this is just world history. <laughs> This is what actually happened according to world history. You go, oh, okay, that's all in the Bible. Well, no, it's not really. 
This is just world history. So there's a group of Jews that revolted, and there became this full-out war between the Jews and the Romans that developed in around 66 A.D. The non-Christian Jews were successful in their initial revolts, and they really regulated what took place around Jerusalem. They were the ones that were in charge of that area. They're kind of like telling the Romans, hey, this is the way it's going to be, which is kind of crazy to think about. Then the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, were insisting that the temple practices and the sacrifices were to continue. This has to happen. This is God's way, and, and all these sacrifices have to happen. And each was, according, was to live according to the law. You have to do what the law says. Now, remember, if this is 64, 66 AD, Jesus has already come. His ministry has already been fulfilled, and he died around 31 AD, some 35 years earlier. Yet, the Jews were still pushing their system because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So you got a group that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they're like, we don't have to do the law anymore. We don't have to do sacrifices anymore because Jesus died for our sins. Yet the Jews are saying, no, you have to do this. The Pharisees, the religious people were saying, you have to do this. And then if no one lost their life for the cause, then most likely they were scattered between two dates. Hebrews 3 refers to the Jews 40 years in the wilderness and how this was similar in time. If Jesus died in 31 AD, and they're saying this is similar to being in the wilderness, we're talking 40 years, we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's approximately 40 years. That judgment came upon the non-believing Jews. These Christian Jews, now remember, this is before 70 A.D. when this letter was written. These Christian Jews were facing this dilemma of either disassociating themselves from the temple sacrifices and accepting the persecution from non-Christian Jews or place themselves under the sacrificial system in Jerusalem like, we're, okay, let's just go back to the old covenant ways and do it and we don't get persecuted and we'll just... Even though we still believe Jesus was the Messiah, we can still do the practices. <laughs> they, they had a choice. And some of them were considering to do that. This decision would ultimately mean a physical death. If they chose to go back to the old system, in history we know that it means a physical death. Now, Remember this, this is this little side note. If they went back to the system, even though that they believe Jesus, it doesn't say that they're going to lose their salvation. They're not going to lose their, but they may lose their life. You go, you go back to the old system, it's not going to be good. And obviously destruction came in 70 AD at the hands of Titus, who had picked up where his father had left off, Vespasian, left off in 69 A.D. And the history records by Josephus, who is an accredited historian, who was Jewish, 
He says this, that 97,000 prisoners were taken during the war. Rome came into Jerusalem and just destroyed the whole system. 1.1 million non-Christian Jews died. If they would have gone back into the system, they would have been there 70 AD at the temple, and the Romans would have destroyed them and killed them. Over 100,000 Christian Jews escaped beyond the Jordan River and remained there until after the war ceased. Now, I tell you all that to keep everything in context. If you don't have that context, like if, if you've missed this first week in just the context of the historical setting of Hebrews, this letter is not going to make any sense to you and it's going to be really confusing. But you're here today and you're hearing the context. So let's get into chapter 1, verse 1. It says, long ago, God spoke. You ever hear God? Has God ever spoken to you? He has me. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. The audience literally believed that God was a speaking God that he spoke to most people. And you sit here and you go, well, the prophets, it says to our ancestors by the prophets, automatically you sit there and go, well, that would be Isaiah through Malachi. That He's talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, all those prophets. But if you go back... And you actually look in Genesis, in Deuteronomy, it talks about Moses being a prophet. It talks about David being a prophet. So when he's literally saying to our ancestors by the prophets, he's talking about all the Old Testament characters that were leaders in faith, that God spoke to them and they were able to speak and to lead the people. The author is is literally at this point right here confirming that the Old Testament is absolute truth and God's word. To this day, I sit here and say, I'm a, we're a New Testament church. I, I've been teaching the New Testament for how many years now? But let me tell yeah, forever, exactly. Uh, but let me tell you, the Old Testament is absolutely true. I believe it with all my heart. I believe it. It's God's word. The New Covenant believers... Spend a lot of time doing that, exactly that, that we confirm and affirm that the, that the Old Testament is God's absolute truth. And it says, at different times and in different ways. Think about this. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophetic speech in Hosea 12.10, through visions in Genesis chapter 46, verse 2. Human mediated speech, Exodus thirty three eleven, appearance of God experiences, Exodus nineteen seventeen, and a still small voice in First Kings. God spoke, appeared, and did things to prophets in many different ways, many different times. So this author is reminding 
these Christian Jewish believers that the Old Testament is true. And then verse 2, he says, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. That phrase, in these last days, is shorthand for the whole era of grace that we're currently live in between the first coming of Jesus and the next coming of Jesus. Everything the Jews knew about God in the Old Testament was now being changed through his son. Everything that they knew that they believed God's word, which for them was Genesis through Malachi, is now being changed through Jesus, right? 30 years before this letter. Everything the Jews knew about God and believed about God has now changed. Everything the prophets foretold was now being made known through the life of Jesus. They said this was going to be happen, happening, and Jesus did it. God went from multiple messengers, literally, to one, his son. Everything the prophet said kind of funneled into this one person being Jesus Christ. And the truth from Jesus was to prevail that of the Old Testament prophets. He's superior to the previous messengers. Now, you, you think about how they had all these prophets on pedestals. Moses, Abraham, David, Daniel, Isaiah. These Jews had, though, and now he's saying Jesus is superior to all these prophets. Therefore, this new covenant that was established by Jesus supersedes the old covenant established by Moses. Uh-oh, wait, you're saying that Jesus is replacing Moses? Yes, that's what the author is saying. God is saying everything is Jesus's, and someday he will rule over all that he already owns. John twelve thirty one says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That would be Satan. And it says here in this verse that they made the universe through him. John 1, 1. Since Jesus is the word of God and spoke all things into existence, then Jesus created all things. Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 3, it says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. In the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Good reason for you to think that Jesus is in heaven because it says that he is. He's literally sitting at the right hand of God. Yet, he's sitting right here in this room. He's capable of doing that. He's capable. Jesus is the exact representation of his Father's nature. John fourteen nine 
It says, Philip hung out with Jesus for three years, and he asked to see the Father. And what was Jesus' reply? If, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. We're, we're one and the same. Our character, our nature, everything that we think about, talk about, and do is the exact same. We, we don't do anything apart. We, we know exactly from the beginning to the end how things are going to play out. We know. We think alike. He works through me. That glory that was in the Old Testament, that burning bush in Moses, that glory, it's me. It's me. The glory is me. And then the greatest thing, the greatest thing about this, it says Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why does it say that he sat down? Because in the temple... In the temple, the Levitical priests, they were doing sacrifices for sins. The blood was being poured out. They would slice the animal's neck, and the blood would be poured out. And it would be an offering, an offering for their sin. And all it did was, like, cover their sin. It atoned for their sin. It covered. It didn't take away. It didn't remove the sin. But all day long during that day, they were standing and moving and making things happen. And it, they just never sat down and Jesus says, I'm sitting down because it's finished. It's over. One time. Romans eight thirty four. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He died one time. It's done. He says, it's finished. I'm sitting down. It's complete. You're complete. You're completely forgiven. You live in a state of forgiveness. You walk around holy, righteous, and redeemed. Yeah, you still blow it. I get it. But he's dealt with it. And, and listen to me. That, that is why it's so important that you don't focus on trying to stop sinning. <laughs> One, it doesn't work. Two, he's already dealt with it. If you just focus on Jesus, he will be the one that causes you to stop sinning. Not you, you've tried. You've tried. It doesn't do any good for you to try to stop sinning. Jesus who came to earth and suffered as a physical man, tempted as we were tempted, like walked in our shoes, sits now at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. Hey, Father, not that you don't already know it, but Rusty really loves you. He may not be showing it right now, but he really loves you. And then in verse 4 it says, so he became superior to the angels. If you read that, so he became, like all of a sudden Jesus became. He once wasn't. In their minds, he once wasn't. He was always superior to the angels. 
But understand this, the context of this statement, it says, so he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Jews believed, and we know this according to Acts chapter 7, the Jews believed that Moses, the man that they have, the prophet that they have set on a pedestal and received the law, that the law was delivered by angels. And so angels became very important to the Jews because they delivered the message to Moses. It says that in the scripture. The angels became so important to others that they began to worship the messenger to Moses. They began to worship angels. Don't ever worship the messenger. Don't ever put me on a pedestal. Don't ever put Matt on a pedestal. It's not about us. I, I am no different than you. I am no different. The same spirit that lives in me is the same spirit that lives in you. I'm holy, righteous, and redeemed. If you believe in Jesus, you're holy, righteous, and redeemed. You've been made perfect. So the Jews, they worship these angels. And for him to say he became superior to the angels, it makes sense. Our society has this concept of angels, and it is so unbiblical. <laughs> like, if, if you, one, if you just, like, Google angels, all these pictures of women with wings and harps and everything come up. Do you know the only angels mentioned in the Bible uh, were male? Yet, we always see them as female. And that whole thing about people dying and becoming angels, <laughs> and that's not what happens. You don't become an angel. You, don't be, you, you have a glorified body. Rick is definitely not an angel, right, Mindy? <laughs> he he is there in heaven and he's got this glorified body we have these glorified bodies we're, it's different than this thank goodness uh, but I'm not going to be an angel it's a whole different story and we're not going to chase that right now but he's literally saying Jesus is superior to the angels he's saying Jesus is superior to Moses Jesus has a higher ranking than these. Even the name of Jesus is superior. Just to say Jesus. We we deal with anxiety in our family. We deal with it. And the thing that we've learned to overcome it is to call out the name of Jesus. Because he's superior than anything. The writer of Hebrews knows the readers of this letter need more proof than just this first four verses. 
So as he continues on in this chapter, this first chapter, he finishes it. He's convincing them of Jesus' superiority. Today, I, I rest from trying to convince you. Just go read it. Just go read it. Yeah, we'll come back next week and unpack it some more. But Jesus the man, Jesus the person who resides in me, who resides in you, is the greatest of all. Father, I pray that um, as we break into your word and your word that's in print is really actually Jesus in us. That your word is alive and well. That it lives within us. It walks with us. Just as Matt was saying that um, just let us be a light to the world. The world definitely needs it. Let them know that you are superior. That you are the greatest of all time. So, Father, I pray that uh, as people walk out of here, that they be reaffirmed of that, that they know that. And they can just enjoy the week. That you would just love on them and, uh, and hold them this week. I pray for the Beaver family, the Campbells and the Ditzlers, the Lumpkins, Lord, that you would just give them peace this week that is your peace rather than their own. Just comfort them. To watch over them and protect them. And even let them smile in the midst of grief. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.